Welcome to Growth Island, your go-to podcast on how to be the best version of yourself. Now, let's join your host, Mess Freeze, as he interviews high performers and experts in nutrition, meditation, exercise, relationships, business, general health, and life's bigger mysteries. Welcome to this episode of Growth Island. My name is Mass Fries and I'm your host as always. Today is a very different episode than normally. We have a special situation in the world right now where we are talking more about war. And I have someone someone on the podcast today that wrote a book on killing with drones. He is a, a retired Marine Lieutenant Colonel. He uh, I can list for the next five minutes all the things that he's been doing and how he's been awarded for being a, a fantastic soldier and leader and uh, and moving himself and moving troops. I first want to interview him about the discipline of being a Marine because Marines are some of the best soldiers in the world. Uh, very disciplined. It's hard to get in and it's hard to actually survive there for many years because it's so tough to continue to stay at your best. So that's why I got so intrigued about interviewing this guest. But we're going to go into that. But in the light of what's happening right now, we're also going to go into like, what does it mean as uh, he wrote the book about actually uh, going to war with drones? So it's a bit different than what we normally do, but I hope you'll stay on. And uh, this is some of the essential questions that we often don't talk about or we don't want to talk about. But when are you willing to actually stand off for something and take someone else's life? When is it that it's uh, is it justifiable? Is it ever justifiable? And what does someone think that are in this situation? So this was a longer introduction than normally, but I'm quite happy to have uh, Wayne Phils on the show today. Wayne, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. So Wayne, you are a retired Marine Lieutenant Colonel. That's quite high up. So you didn't just go in and survive the year two. How, uh, how did that happen? Yeah, sometimes I ask myself that same question. <laughs> and I, I joined the Marine Corps in 1997, so before 9-11. Um, I told myself that I was going to just do four years and I would, I would get out when I was no longer having fun. Um, 20 years later, I retired, you know, in 2018. Um, you know, the, the Marine Corps is uh, just a fascinating organization uh, that push, pushes you uh, to, to do more than you think you can do, both, you know, physically and mentally, you know, from the early stages of training all the way through uh, combat deployments. So it's, um, uh, it's, it was quite a ride. That's for sure. I can imagine something that people often talk about is the environment and the environment being key. Can you tell something about that? Yeah. You know, some people compare the Marine Corps to a cult. <laughs> um, you know, we have this love of our own service, uh, and, you know, we don't have the the best equipment or the biggest budgets or uh, any of those things. But what we have is, you know, the honor of of being a Marine, uh, and that's that's transformative in your life. You know, it, it definitely changed me uh, when I first went to officer candidate school at the age of nineteen. You know, as a, a rather undisciplined teenager, it, it gave me direction and and uh, showed me what what you could accomplish through discipline and. Uh, you know, motivation and, and working together as a team. Um, yeah. you know, all of those things that I continued to, you know, take forward from there throughout my entire career of, of leading Marines in, in combat situations. Uh, 
What are some of the things that you learn as a Marine or that you use to teach the new Marines in regards to self-discipline and being the best version of yourself, showing up even though it is difficult? Yeah, well, there's, there's definitely difficult times. Um, and what you learn is that uh, your fellow Marines will, will be there to pick you up when you're down. Uh, they'll be there to, to, to motivate you uh, when you're, <laughs> you know, you don't feel like putting in a hundred percent um, and they'll be there for you when, when things are, uh, the roughest that you can imagine when you're deployed away from, you know, your family and friends, when you're being shot at, uh, when you're living in the most austere and worst environment that you can imagine, what, what gets you by is the, the Marines here left and right. It's also enduring the same hardships mm -hmm. and you form this camaraderie and this bond that, that really lasts for the rest of your life. I still talk to Marines that I've, I've been to war with uh, on a routine basis. I guess for the listeners that are not American and doesn't know what a Marine is, can you just give a few more words so we kind of have the context of what it means to be a Marine? Sure. Um, so Marines are basically, we started off as uh, seagoing soldiers, right? We would uh, defend ships and now we're, we're basically uh, a force that is uh, uh, expeditionary, meaning we we we're on ships for deployed, and then we're we're light and we're quick, and we we respond to contingencies and crises around the world uh, in a relatively quick manner. Uh, I've done a couple of deployments on on ships um, on navy ships. Uh, the first one I did was uh, right before and during 9-11. I was forward deployed in Australia doing some training. And then immediately from there, we, we were involved in the early uh, early fight in Afghanistan. So uh, we have these forces that are constantly deployed and, and ready to respond at a moment's notice. And Wayne, now we have the Ukraine-Russia war. And I think for a lot of the Western world, we haven't been that effective of war in like our backyard. It seems that it's much easier when it's happening in someone else's backyard. It's in the Middle East and in Africa. It's not really like as close. And we've seen that how people are reacting, at least in the West. And many people are starting to think about like, would they actually be able to kill someone else to defend the country? Like what, what goes through someone's head when you go into war and you leave the safe space and suddenly you have to consider like, am I willing to take someone else's life? Yeah, that's a, that's a really tough question uh, because everybody... Uh, thinks about this a little differently. Uh, and I would say that from my own experiences of, uh, you know, being in combat uh, and being responsible for other people uh, as a, as a leader, uh, what went through my head was, you know, the decisions that I had to make and how it would impact those that I was responsible for, you know, was, was I making a decision that was going to get somebody killed? Um, there's a lot of fear and particularly the fear of the unknown. Um, and it takes, it obviously takes courage to, you know, to get through those moments and, and your fellow, you know, Marine and soldiers uh, to your left and right are, are what really gets you through those situations. Uh, you know, just somebody that stands up and says, Hey, we have to get this done uh, in the face of the worst conditions you can imagine, whether you're under fire and things like that. I can only imagine what the Ukrainians are going through right now, uh, you know, defending their own homeland for you know, democracy and freedom and their, their own life at this point. It's, uh, 
you know, I think it's a, it's been a wake up call for, for the entire world that, you know, work can happen at a moment's notice, you know, back in uh, December and January, we were witnessing the, the buildup of Russian troops on the border. Uh, and we didn't know where it was going to, to lead. Uh, and here we are uh, four weeks into the war and we're seeing, you know, entire cities being destroyed and the Ukrainians are fighting with, you know, courage and, uh, you know, determination for their own way of life and really for, for the Western way of life for, for all of Europe and, you know, for the West. Yeah. Uh, I, I really think it's, it's admirable uh, what they're doing. What do you think is important for, because I've seen that there are people that are from the Ukraine and they're living in Denmark. Some of them have been like going in buses and so on down to be part of defending Ukraine. What's, what's important for someone doing that and being able to, uh, to go through it from a psychological perspective? You know, um, the military does a, a fairly good job of preparing people for, uh, for conflict. Um, you know, it's, it's to a point where some of those things, your actions that you take at a tactical level are almost muscle memory. You know, you're, you train through repetition and, and drills and things like that. So we're, we're conditioned uh, to, to fight. Now, if you take your average uh, citizen, whether it's, you know, in any country, and you put them in that situation, they don't have that same level of conditioning. Uh, they're not trained to do that, uh, but they're fighting for their own existence. Uh, so they're definitely, uh, they're definitely motivated, um, you know, for their own survival um, and for their homeland. You know, they're defending not only uh, their homeland, but their families. You know, so they have this, um, you know, this motivation to continue on. Yeah, it's a special situation and these people that have been going from never imagining having to go to war and have no military training, suddenly putting in a helmet and going down into very fast training. Um, I was told at one point that like humans are not really um, made to kill other humans. And then people might be like, yeah, that's a no brainer, but that we have a really hard time. And actually when we study the history, in many wars, people just kind of like shoot, not at each other, but like at other people to kind of scare people off because there's something innate in us that doesn't want to uh, take another human's life. And that one of the ways that we've kind of been training people to get better is like through computer games. Um, and that also gets, goes into your book, which is on killing remotely, the psychology of killing with drones. What's kind of like, is it making it easier when someone is sitting behind a screen? Then when someone is facing it, I would imagine, and what's the psychology of, of being able to do that? Yeah, there, there's a lot to unpack in that statement that you just made. Um, first, the, the resistance to kill another human, as you know, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman has is, is written extensively about that in, in both on killing and on combat. And uh, I wrote on killing remotely with Dave Grossman. So we you know, collaborated on this project and I reference a lot of the work that he does and on killing. Um, what, what humans have to do in order to overcome their resistance to killing another human is to dehumanize that individual, uh, to see them as less than human. And we do this in, in many ways. You know, we, uh, the way we uh, talk about other, you know, other people, uh, the way we reference them and, and use 
uh, derogatory terms and things like that, uh, all to dehumanize that individual. Um, it makes it, I don't want to say easier, but it, 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 makes it, uh, it makes it more palatable for a human to, uh, to understand what they have to do and, and to carry out that deed. Um, and that actually carries over into uh, drone crews as well, because you have this constant struggle with an individual that's uh, sitting in a ground control station, or basically a remote cockpit. This constant struggle of trying to dehumanize this individual so they can strike a target, but yet at the same time, they're recognizing the humanity of that individual. Um, and the way they're doing that is, is through this full motion video, this high definition video that is constantly streaming and you can zoom in and see the very fine details of a person, you know, the color of their shirt, their hand gestures, all of these things. Um, and you can see actions uh, that they're doing that are things that you and I do on a daily basis, you know, playing with our kids in the backyard, going, you know, going to the market, um, having lunch with your friends, all of these things are very humanizing and, and it'll, it you know, forces us to recognize the humanity of that individual. Uh, drone crews conduct these missions called pattern of life. And what that means is they follow individual targets for a significant amount of time, sometimes hours, days, weeks, months, and even years in some cases, which means that they are really recognizing the humanity of that individual and they're they know almost everything about them. They know their habits, their routine, who they associate with. Um, How high up are these drones? Then for the individual not to like notice that like a drone is following me. You know, 15,000 feet or higher. The cameras they have are just really amazing. Better than the ones we have on now for the show. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're, the, the cameras are, are usually the, the most expensive part of uh, of the system itself. So the cameras are, are just amazing and you can see things day or nighttime uh, and you can zoom in, as I mentioned, and just see really fine details. So you've got this struggle, you know, constantly of, uh, of trying to you know, dehumanize the individual at the same time you're recognizing that they're, they're a human. So is it actually more difficult with a drone? I would imagine First, that it's more difficult when you're seeing another human in front of you and you have to pull the trigger. But what you're telling me right now is that one of the main things to be able to pull the trigger is dehumanizing them. And by following them for several days, you might see them play with their kids and so on. You suddenly see like the human aspect. And if you're following them for days or weeks, you would start to think about it more from their side because it's no longer just in like two seconds you have to react. It's them or you. Yeah, absolutely. So you take the... Uh... Uh, the fear of uh, of death out of the equation, right? Because these operations are conducted remotely, you know, from seven thousand miles away sometimes. Um, so you're taking that, uh, you know, it's him or me out of the equation, um, and and what you're <laughs> what you're replacing it with is uh, these these crazy feelings of like a one sided intimacy with this individual. I interviewed uh, one person for the, the book that said he followed this, uh, this terrorist leader for six months 
every day for eight hours a day, he's watching this person. And he would watch him play soccer with his kids in the backyard. And this guy was also a father. This intelligence analyst was also a father. He said, I knew that this guy was a, a good father because of the way he interacted with his kids. And then one day he got a little too far away from the house and they struck him with a missile and killed him right in front of his kids. And he said that was you know, excruciatingly difficult uh, on him. He knew it was the right thing to do because of all of the nefarious things that this guy was, was doing, but it didn't make it easier for him. No, and that raises, but that's a bigger societal thing, right? Um, if this gets in the hands of the wrong people, and sometimes we make mistakes, how do we know that this was really the person that did the things? And when you see the propaganda, and there's a lot of talk right now about the propaganda in Russia, but there's also a ton of propaganda in the West where like we are saying stuff happened that didn't happen, right? So suddenly you have people sitting yeah. that might be acting on the wrong intelligence. That's of course also happening in, in a real war, but it's an interesting problem that, uh, that we're facing and also the world we're going forward in, that there's going to be these militaries around the world or potentially private individuals that can get their hands on this kind of gear and, uh, and follow around. What, like, how do, we, how do we handle that dilemma? <laughs> I, you know, I, I wish I had a great answer for that, that question, but um, I, I think what we are witnessing right now is the proliferation of uh, drones throughout the entire world, and they're being used you know, for, for good purposes, and they're being used for, uh, for dangerous activities. Uh, we've seen Mexican drug cartels use them to strike <clears throat> police or, or other cartels. We've We've seen Houthi rebels in, in Yemen um, strike targets inside of Saudi Arabia and the UAE uh, with drones. Um, there, there's no way that we're going to be able to eliminate this threat uh, in the future. It's, it's just going to be part of uh, future conflict. And, and we're seeing that in, in Ukraine as well. You know, the Russians are employing drones for surveillance to find targets that they're shooting with artillery. And they've also started employing uh, what some refer to as kamikaze drones that basically dive bomb onto a target. Uh, and oftentimes they can even select the target autonomously without a human making the decision and diving down on those, uh, those targets and you know, striking them. So this is you know, changing the, the landscape of war uh, and, and it's going to be part of, it, uh, of conflict moving forward from here. Yeah. What do you think about the dilemma? I heard before that one of the main things um, to secure humanity is that we don't build machines that can kill us. And that uh, the number one rule, I think it was Peter Diamandis that I read, he wrote about like why uh, machine learning, all these things are amazing and why it's going to make a much better life for us. But there were certain rules that we needed to go by to make sure that it would never be something bad. And one of them was actually machines are never allowed to hurt a human being even though the human being is hurting the machine? You know, I'm actually doing research for another book uh, about that uh, specific topic on autonomous weapons or killer robots or, you know, whatever you want to refer to them. But uh, machines that can sense the environment, identify a target, and make the determination to strike that target, and then employ weapons all without a human uh, making the decision uh, is 
is where the future of, of conflict is is heading. Yeah. Um, and you brought up a great point about you know the ethics of this. There's there's so many considerations uh, that we have to we have to evaluate. You know the political landscape. Does it make it easier to enter into conflict if if we don't have skin in the game, right? If we're not risking our own soldiers' lives, and we can just send in a, ro a robot army to fight our wars, does that make it easier to enter into conflict? Uh, the legal aspects of, you know, does uh, robots that kill people do they comply with international humanitarian law? And then the hardest piece is the ethical and moral consideration of is it is it moral to kill somebody with a with a robot where the robot makes that decision to do so without meaningful human control mm. um, there are some people that uh, are advocating for a ban on these kinds of weapons before they even uh, come into existence in large numbers yeah they're they're already in existence in certain circumstances to date. But uh, when we're talking about drone armies uh, or robot armies that, uh, that do these kinds of things, not on a large scale. So there's some that are advocating for banning it before it even happens. And then there are some that says, well, let's look at it uh, in this regard. If you know, humans make a lot of mistakes in war, we kill the wrong people, we have fratricide, we, you know, we destroy infrastructure like we're seeing in Ukraine. If you could get a robot that could precisely hit the specific target uh, and minimize collateral damage and human suffering, do we have a moral obligation to employ those to minimize human suffering instead? So there's a couple of sides to this argument. And I, I really think it's interesting to see it uh, playing out these days. Yeah, there's definitely the point that you're probably going to be much more accurate. Like you can have image recognition and so on to make sure it's the person that you really want to go for that you're going to hit, I guess. And then, but just like bioweapons and other weapons, like what is it that we're letting loose? And what are the potential consequences also of these things getting hacked or that the systems are going to start take ownership themselves? Yeah. Um, oh, suddenly just go for all people, right? A virus or something else so suddenly just goes loose. So this uh, is no longer just going for a target that we believe have killed a lot of people or done bad things. Now it's just going for all humans that have dark hair, for example, right? Or something else going wrong. It's, um, it's, a, it's a difficult question. Yeah, it's kind of the doomsday scenario where we think of Terminator, you yeah. know, running around on the battlefield. Um, and there's a lot of technology that has to mature before we could, you know, effectively employ these, employ these kinds of weapons on the battlefield. The computer vision, like you're talking about being able to use artificial intelligence to identify a target. Um, and then, you know, take into consideration, how do you identify that that's a legitimate target if they're trying to surrender or if it's a, a person that's just carrying a weapon, but isn't a threat all of, all of those nuances, um, have to be considered before you can employ these kinds of weapons. Yeah, that's where like my technology brain quickly goes to, well, you can probably, uh, with a bit of technology, you can measure temperature, you can measure voice tone and so on in regards to figuring out is this actually someone that's a threat or not. But it still, it still raises a lot of questions. What's the ethical justifications often 
uh, that we use in the quest for like when is it okay to kill someone and when are we not gonna kill them we're just gonna try and keep them hostage or let them live do we have like a like they need to have killed a hundred people or they need to have done xyz before we take them out um i think we look at it through a couple probably three different lenses you know first the legal uh aspect is this a a valid uh military target um so that's the first the hurdle i would say that you have to and how, you have do, to we, how do we say like this is a, a legal like okay target like how do we how do we make that decision has there been like a judge being like okay this person has done these war crimes and now we're going to go after the person or how does that work like how do we put people on a list of being like these are allowed to send a drone after them are you talking about who who gets put on a, a kill list to be targeted yes. by a drone yes yeah there, there's a process where where they go through based off of you know evaluating uh, all of the actions that they've done um it, it's much it's much easier if you're fighting a, a state uh you know state on state uh conflict where you can declare say you know the russian military in ukraine are all declared hostile and you can engage them anywhere throughout the country. It's much more difficult if you're fighting a violent extremist organization that doesn't adhere to uh, you know, the Geneva Convention, they're not internationally recognized as a state. So then you're, you're trying to figure out individuals uh, within that organization uh, and based off of what they've done, you're, you know, you're trying to target them. Um, and that's, that's how it's been done in the uh, you know, the last 20 years in the United States where we look at individuals within, say, Al-Qaeda or the Islamic State and things like that. So uh, the other lens you got to think about is just because we can legally kill them, you know, is the timing right? Um, is the situation right? Um, should we kill them? You know, is is the military value of, of, of killing that individual, uh, does it outweigh all of the other uh, considerations uh, such as collateral damage. You know, say you've, 2002, say we found Osama bin Laden in the middle of a market and, you know, we had a clear indication that it was him, but by killing him, we're also going to kill, you know, another 50 people. Uh, someone has to weigh the, the military value of what it means to kill that person and accept that level of uh, collateral damage. Uh, those civilian casualties. So that's, you know, should we kill them? And then the next thing we'd have to uh, consider is, okay, if, if we can legally kill them and we should kill them, then how do we kill them? Yeah. Um, you know, how do we... high up does those decisions go? Like what level can you make that decision to be like, okay, this is a target, let's say Osama bin Laden, mm -hmm. uh, there's 50 people around him. Do you want to take those 50 people? Because we know in Yemen, for example, where the U.S. has been in war for many years together with Saudi Arabia, and it's, I saw some numbers, I'm not sure if it was like 100,000, 200,000 people that have died. There's like crazy numbers, but they also estimate that 60% was from famine and other things like related to the war, right? But like, who, like, because I guess the president can sit and make all those decisions, especially in Yemen and other places. I understand with like someone like Osama bin Laden, they might be able to call and be like, hey, what's up? We have to target now. I still imagine he's not the one making the call. And like there's a classic saying, don't tell the president if you're killing someone, right? So they can be like, no, it wasn't me. Well, I, th I think it differs from president to president. So when uh, President Obama was in office, he had 
set of guidelines that basically uh, there were specific individuals that he wanted to be consulted on and he wanted to you know have the authority to say yes we're, we can strike that target uh, if you remember uh, when we struck Qasem uh, Soleimani uh, the Iranian general in Iraq January of 2020 those are the kind of decisions that you expect are being made by the president um, if there is and there's there's guidelines for the level of uh, collateral damage based off of an estimate, uh, how high up the chain of command that has to escalate for the appropriate decision authority to say yes, uh, the military value of striking this target is worth the, you know the the risk of uh, civilian casualties, and that's a tough decision that you're putting on somebody to make. Those decision authorities are the ones that say yes, it's okay, and then the person, you know, the people that carry it out are are actually the drone crews that have to live with that the remainder of their days, knowing that hey, I may have killed this high value individual, but I also killed you know five other civilians that had nothing to do with this person. Um, How do so- people deal with that mentally? Because so many soldiers get PTSD and are quite challenged mentally afterwards. Like, how do, you, how do you work with this to make sure that this is part of what you're doing and you believe in what you're doing, that this is the right thing to do? Um, but how do you work with this psychologically? That's challenging. Um, and, and I think there are a lot more uh, drone crews and intel, intelligence analysts that are struggling with this than we, we recognize or that we care to admit. Uh, just from conversations I had and interviews with people uh, for research for the book, you know, the, the numbers that, that I was, and I also conducted a survey, uh, a survey of 254 people that had used a drone to kill in combat. Uh, and I asked them questions that were very probing. Uh, and I asked them to, you know, self-diagnose their own mental health. And what I did was I compared that to studies that the Air Force has done. There's an Air Force psychologist named Dr. Wayne Chappelle who has been studying uh, the, the effects on humans conducting remote warfare for longer than a decade. And he's published several papers on these. His first paper he published was in 2014. And he said about 4% of drone crews were exhibiting PTSD-like symptoms. Uh, from the work that they were doing. A few years later, he conducted another survey and and that number went up to to 6%. Uh, What people told me through my surveys, through self-diagnosis, you know, this isn't a medical uh, diagnosis, was that uh, about 12, almost 13% uh, claimed that they had experienced PTSD-like symptoms and another 25% of them thought that they might have PTSD. So when you take those two combined, you're looking at almost a third uh, of, of the force, a little over a third of the force that, that I surveyed that said, yeah, I, I don't feel great about my state uh, of mental health. So the Air Force, uh, the United States Air Force has introduced these things called human performance teams. Uh, these are psychologists uh, medical professionals, license, licensed uh, uh, counselors, chaplains—you know, uh, things like that—that are embedded with the, the remotely piloted aircraft squadrons, 
and they have security clearances as well. And they are there to you know, talk with, uh, with the air crew after any incident they might have and they follow up with them and they try to identify uh, when people are struggling and they try to, they try to help them uh, you know, almost immediately. So that's, that's been a, a welcome change over the course of uh, the history the last 20 years since we started employing these, these kinds of weapons. Um, so that's one way they deal with it. When you say one third, that's, now I work with mental health. And if you look at how many Americans in general have problems with mental health, uh, you're not far from one third, uh, people that feel stressed and so on. But I'm assuming of these people, when you say one third, it's not just like, I'm not feeling my best and so on. It's actually having a fair bit of challenge that you said some have PTSD and some are feeling a lot of symptoms from it. Yeah. So one of the things I studied in this book and wanted to understand was how how we kill with drones, how we respond to that, uh, both uh, psychologically and physiologically, and then why we respond in that way. Um, and part of the the survey was to understand uh, how we respond, and then the interviews that I conducted. Uh, I conducted over 50 first-person interviews as well. And though the interviews were really to get to the you know, quality, the uh, qualitative uh, research to understand why we respond that way. So uh, what I determined, there, there was three incidents that happened for drone crews during a mission that were more likely to cause uh, what I referred to as a negative response to killing. And that could be a short-term or it could be long-term and turn into PTSD uh, if, if those uh, symptoms uh, remained. And those three incidents, the first one is, we, we've already talked about conducting this long pattern of life mission where you're recognizing the humanity of the individual. And then after a period of time, you, you're killing that person. Um, that's like severing this one-sided in intimacy that you're developing with this person. Uh, the second one, was any time that we observed friendly forces on the ground that are killed or wounded in action. So it had nothing to do with actually striking a target and everything to do with preventing the people that you were assigned to protect from being wounded or killed, which I, I think really shows that uh, there's a connection to the people on the ground, even though you're flying uh, from 7,000 miles away. Uh, and the, which, there's a lot of people that say that you know remote warfare is is cold and it's you know sanitized and people are emotionally disengaged from it and and all of my findings were were completely the opposite that it's you know they're they are wholeheartedly engaged in this kind of work and and the final thing was anytime there was a strike that revolt that resulted in civilian casualties and as you can imagine you know we train our warriors to be ethical and to only you know, strike targets that are legitimate military targets. And anytime a strike results where someone is killed, that's not a, a legitimate military target, that's, that's going to impact people pretty significantly. And one of the other things I'd like to talk about too is that I thought was really interesting was the physiological responses uh, of people conducting this work. So there's been a lot of studies on how people respond to face-to-face -face lethal encounters, both in law enforcement and in the military 
you know, and Grossman talks about these and on killing and on combat and uh, a lot of the, your physiological responses are, you know, elevated heart rate, um, you know, your breathing is, uh, is also rapid. You have memory distortion. Um, time seems to slow down or speed up. Um, you have auditory exclusion, like you can't hear things, sweaty palms. Some people throw up. Some people are just paralyzed, can't, you know, can't uh, act at all. And that's, I thought that was partially a dubi partially due because your life is in danger and you're threatened, right? So this is your fight or flight response that your body's kicking in and saying, all right, we've, we've got to protect ourselves. What I also found was drone crews that were uh, striking targets from 7,000 miles away were experiencing some of these same physiological responses prior to and during the strikes shaky legs, sweaty palms, they couldn't speak, memory distortion, they were throwing up, elevated heart rate, all of these things were happening as well, even though their life was not in danger. Uh, but that's because they were taking another human life. And because cognitively, their distance to that individual was really close. Physically, their distance, you know, is, is irrelevant. But you know, mentally, cognitively, they were, it's like they were right there. That's very interesting. That you actually, it's just something so innate of that, like killing another person, even though they can do something back to us, is not something we're made for. And I think that finding also points towards, should we just allow um, autonomous killing machines, right? Because it suddenly changes it. It'll be a lot easier to take someone's life and it probably should be difficult so that we're not doing it too easy and too often. But interesting finding and be, be fascinating if you get to write the next book about like, what does it mean, the ethics behind it and so on. Yeah. What do you think that, about the, the ones in Ukraine right now um, and also the Russians? So they're getting different propaganda, right? The Ukrainians, like they're defending their country. The Russians, all the news that they're getting is like, hey, it's a special operations. They're not allowed to call a war. So they're just being told that they're going in in a, in a good cause. And we've seen that around the world. We also had American soldiers in Vietnam that went down there and believed in they were fighting for freedom and then suddenly came home and be called uh, child killers and uh, were told that their mission was actually not, uh, it wasn't legit and it wasn't okay. What for those, both the Russians and the Ukrainians, what's the advice from a psychological perspective from what you've been reading and, and studying and so on and like, surviving afterwards mentally and living with these consequences? Well, I think what we are seeing is that information is, is a domain of, of warfare. And we know that information is an instrument of national power uh, to help influence uh, our adversaries' actions and, both, and to influence uh, and rally our, our own support uh, for conflict and, and what, what I think we're seeing uh, like, like no other conflict to date is this information warfare being played out on social media and you know, in the traditional media. Um, it's, I, I find it fascinating because it's just another, uh, another domain or another, uh, another medium in which 
you can influence the world either towards you or against you or influence your own people either to rally against the Russians, uh, as in the case of Ukraine, or to support the war efforts uh, in the case of Russia, right? Because they're limiting the amount of information that they get and they're limiting, uh, or they're, they're spinning the information to make themselves look like it's a justified war. It is. I think we're seeing more and more in the future, like only the narrative, but that's also what they say. The first thing that, uh, that disappears in war is the truth. Yeah. Uh, and then it's about propaganda and telling the right story. And we see now how both Russia is uh, closing down all outside media and they're getting crazy fines if they call the war and, and stuff that's actually insane. What I've been shocked about as well is that in Denmark, we block Russian media. So we're doing censorship as well. Instead of what you should be doing is taking this up and saying like, hey, this is propaganda. This is not true. This is the data that we have blocking because otherwise we're risking getting a fine line where we're doing the same thing as the ones that we are accusing for doing wrong. I think most people agree that it was wrong that Russia has gone into Ukraine. But this whole information war and how we deal with that, that's um, it's a fascinating and interesting and scary subject of, of who's actually controlling what we get to uh, to learn and what we believe in, right? Yeah, I think most people get their information uh, through social media these days, their news, their opinions, uh, and it forms their their bias uh, towards how they believe, and it affects their values and everything else. And you know, we we've seen that definitely here in the United States over the past few years in the political world, and how social media can can rally people to one side or the other. Um, it's just another instrument of war. Uh, it, just like drones, I think that that is that is definitely here to stay. Uh, but how do we how do we get to the truth? Like you said, how do we realize what's fake? You know, what's a deep fake, uh, and what is what is the ground truth? Uh, it's it's getting harder and harder to do that when you have uh, people that can report from the front lines using their own phone, uh, or they can alter videos and they can you know, put a hashtag on something and you know it goes viral and uh, and like you said we we tend to we tend to listen to things or that reinforce our own opinions about about something i i think it's really important to seek out what the other side is saying and evaluate it um just like you had mentioned russian uh news uh, you know, I was reading an article the other day uh, that talked about what the Russians are actually hearing on their state media. And I think more stories like that need to be told because it, it, tells, it tells the story of how they're viewing this conflict through their own eyes. Yeah. I don't think anybody views themselves uh, as, as evil or wrong, right? We all try to justify what we're doing. I think this whole like what is truth and looking critically is it's becoming more and more relevant and more and more difficult. And we saw it as well with the, the close downs. You can't uh, mention the name of the lockdowns and the name because then this gets flagged for uh, and sent to another website about a certain uh, bug coming on. But where we saw like certain professors from Harvard and Stanford and so on being censored for saying something that was against the narrative. Um, I'm not saying at all that I'm for Putin. I think it's horrible that he went into uh, Ukraine and highly condemns it. Um, I don't think it's at all um, okay. 
but I even have to come with that statement just for saying something about being critical to a narrative and looking at the different statements. And I think that's a challenge as well we are facing in our society today when we're looking at both war and in general, like how we lead populations of what censorship do we do and how do we figure out truth? But it's going to be harder and harder. I, I saw that one way they're trying to figure out in Ukraine whether it was true information or not, for example, pictures is could they find on Google Maps that uh, this seemed likely that this was a place in Ukraine where this war has actually been going on instead where there's been like a video from a, um, from a movie that yeah. was shown like, oh, here these Russians killing this in the city. But that was from a movie where they actually want to go in and see like, what is it actually? And the same like the Russians is like putting this known to like, he's trying to kill his critics, which is crazy. Like at least we don't see that in the US where they go like open front attacks on someone that wants to uh, oppose you and so on, right? Um, but it's crazy. How do you find the truth of what's going on? Also for someone that's then sitting uh, with a drone making the decision, okay, I, I'm, I'm basing this on true knowledge and now I'm going to kill this person. That must be difficult as well. It is difficult. And, and I think I'm, I'm not a big proponent of just employing drones in conflict because I think oftentimes we will get it wrong if all we're, uh, all we're using to make our decisions is a, a little bit of video. Like you need the context of humans on the ground, human intelligence, signals intelligence, you know, and you need a, a corroboration between all of those sources to say, yes, they're all pointing to the same individual at the same location and the same actions. Uh, if we think that we can fight wars from the safety of our own home and just send in drones and strike individuals uh, over the horizon uh, operations, which uh, has has been discussed since we, you know, we we got out of Afghanistan, we're going to see more and more situations where we get it wrong. Um, war is a human endeavor, and the more we try to get away from that fact by automating it, making it autonomous, taking the decisions away from humans and taking humans out of harm's way, uh, the harder it's going to be to get it right. You, you have to have uh, human skin in the game um, yeah. or else, like you mentioned, it's gonna be easier and easier to enter into conflict. Yeah. So Wayne, apart from uh, this stuff, what do you do to stay on top of your game, all the things that you've seen in your life that I can imagine sometimes keeps you up at night. How do you live like a good, happy life where you get up in the morning and you're like, yes, today is going to be a fantastic day, despite all the stuff that's going on out there? Uh, well, coffee. <laughs> <laughs> um, so some, some uh, tools that I use to uh, maintain a healthy you know, work-life balance lots of exercise, um, which was ingrained in me through 20 years of being a Marine. Um, exercise, spending time with my family, getting outdoors, um, you know, hiking, getting on the lake, uh, all of those things. And then staying connected with like-minded individuals that I've served with that, you know, through social media, um, just reaching out to people and saying, hey, are, are you doing okay? Because I know we went through some stuff together and I'm just checking in on you. Uh, so all of those things, you know, I know I really appreciate it when someone reaches out to me and says, hey, you look like you're, 
you know, you're not having a great day. Are you, are you doing okay? Is everything, everything all right? Um, so all of those I think are necessary. You know, when you take the uniform off and you know, the, the government's no longer responsible for your well-being, <laughs> uh, I think you've got to take it into your own hands and, and just go with the tools that you know that work. It's peer support, exercise, family support, you know, good, healthy living. Yeah. When what's an advice you would give to a younger self like 10 years ago? Uh, I would say read more. Um, I, I I love to read, but I I read at a snail's pace, and there's you know and cast my net wider than than just what I what I like to read. I mostly read nonfiction books about the military and things like that. But uh, as I've gotten older, I start to cast the net wider and and read different things that really open my my mind and. You know, and and read things that don't agree with what you're, you know, what I'm biased towards. Uh, read things that uh, make me uncomfortable and critically think about those things. Uh, and I would say another thing too. Is... I love that advice. Just to start there, I, <laughs> uh, I I think it's so important because with social media we get in our echo chambers, so we only see people with the same opinion as us, and it's very easy with the confirmation bias. I try to follow people that I I really don't like. Uh, because they're saying things that trigger something and I highly disagree with, but to still get an argument against what I believe might be truth. And then kind of, uh, I don't spend like 50, 50% are definitely like most people, but if you only like the stuff um, that you normally like and only follow those, you just, you get in an echo chamber. And you over, if you only read from the people that you agree with, you don't get the different perspective of like what's going on in the world or the more nuanced perspective. But, That's uh, absolutely true. Yeah. It's always difficult to like have to read something that you highly disagree with, and uh, and you might have been seeing the way that a person <laughs> has been acting, so you don't like them. But I still find it extremely humbling and uh, and and also like a lesson. You know the the final uh, rule that I have for myself is that I don't argue with people on social media. I don't take the bait when someone says, "Hey, what do you what do you think about this? This differs from what you said." And, Uh, whether it's uh, LinkedIn or Facebook or Twitter, I I have a a rule for myself personally that I don't argue with people on social media. Uh, I walk away, and you know, and I I might be steaming too. I'm like, ah, oh, I'm going to prove them wrong, you know, and and I'll I'll sit on it for a while, I'll stew on it, I'll, I'll craft up things that I want to say, but I don't argue with people on social media, and that is that has made all all of the difference in uh in my happiness <laughs> i can i stay stay off those conversations i very rare go into some so often like what are you going to get out of it anyway if you go into like a good intellectual or not just intellectual but like people are like coming with proper arguments and not being personal and people are actually arguing like um the back in the days with the greeks at least or how we read about them of like uh arguing with like clear arguments and not doing like personal attacks and so on and keeping it at a level so you can actually learn something new and you keep the ego out and it's not like it's my opinion but you actually go into it willing to learn uh, another perspective but that that that's not really what you're seeing on social media no, it's more just like people that want to like this is my way is the right way yeah those aren't the people that you encounter on social media for no. the most part um no You know, I have some friends that I went to college with that, you know, their political leanings are completely 180 out from my own. And I love hearing their perspective. 
uh, if I post something that's fairly political, because they'll come back and say, oh, you know, here's what I think. And I'll say, oh, that's, you know, thank you for sharing your perspective. I, I'm, mm. I'm seeing it through a different lens now. And you may have changed my opinion on this. So, yeah. Wayne, where can people find out more about you? And your book, and let's just quickly go on. The book is On Killing Remotely, The Psychology of Killing with Drones. It's a book that you go into like how the drone came to be a dominant platform, the military, what is it like to kill with a drone, how people respond to killing someone, uh, how they respond, uh, why they respond that way, fighting remotely and then going home to your family at the end of the day and how physical and conscious distance to fight affects drone crews, um, demands of authority to figure out um, figures to kill on their behalf and how you dehumanize the other person to be able to kill it and a ton of other stuff. Um, but where can people find out more about you and the book? Well, you can find the book anywhere that you typically buy books, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Um, it's, it's available in ebook, audio, audio book, uh, whatever your preferred method of, you know, digesting a book is. Um, Amazon's probably the most Uh, the, probably the easiest way to get it. Uh, you can also look on my website, waynephelps.com for information about me and how to get, you know, signed copies if you want, or, you know, what I'm working on next. And then um, I'm on LinkedIn every day as well, if anyone wants to connect with me on LinkedIn. So I'm always looking for, for new connections to learn from and to, you know, network with. And, and I appreciate that. I'll make sure to make sure to put that in the show notes as well so people can find it and it's easy to click in there. Wayne, thank you so much for coming on and discussing a, a difficult topic that uh, I don't think my listeners are used to. We normally talk about not these tough topics. We talk about tough targets about health and so on. But uh, I think this is an extremely important topic and something that more of us are thinking about these days and and something we need to talk more about, like what are we willing to do and what effect does it have and so on. Great. Well, thank, excuse me. Thank you for the opportunity to, to discuss this. Um, the more I can get the word out about how these uh, these folks that are doing this important work, how they respond to it, uh, and dispel some of the myths about about drones, I think uh, you know I'm I'm here to advocate for them. So I, I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Island. Be sure to subscribe for more episodes on how to be the best version of yourself. And if you found this show helpful, then please leave us a review so more people will learn about the podcast or share with a friend who can benefit from it too. Thank you again and have a wonderful day.